Wow. You guys are, <clears throat> you guys are pretty excited about the okayest message of 2019 <laughs> about to come your way. Hey, um, morning everybody at West Falls Church. Morning everybody joining us on Grace Live. Hey, 2020 sounds like it's pretty exciting. Huh? There's a lot coming up, a lot coming our way. Until then, you got me. And you got this, what's about to happen. So let's grip it and rip it. Let's have some fun. Um, I'm going to start off just by reading a passage that we're going to dig into today, into today and, then, uh, and then we'll just go from there. So I'm reading out of the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 4. Um, the only thing that's really important to know is that Jesus has basically just spent the entire day preaching to a crowd on the shore from a boat. And that's where we pick it up, starting in verse 35. The text says this. That day, when evening came, he, says, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And he's talking about the other side of the sea. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. I want to lead you over to the other side of the lake. Let's go that way. Uh, verse 36. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, a couple months ago, Robin and I were in the car with the kids. We were headed over to Tacoma Park, Maryland to visit her sister and her husband and her sister's husband. And it's about a 15 mile drive, give or take. And about halfway there, the gas light comes on. So I'm driving, so I notice it right away and I'm able to do some quick calculations in my head. We're halfway through a 15 mile drive. We've got about seven miles left. I know that when the gas light comes on, there is anywhere between 30 and 50 miles worth of gas left in the tank. So I'm very comfortable finishing this journey, filling up on the way home, because on the way home, we'll pass multiple gas stations closer to our house. But after a minute or two, Robin notices that gaslight. And as you would imagine, she asks, do we need to stop and get gas? <clears throat> I assured her that we were fine. Said, it'll be no problem. We'll stop. We'll get gas on the way home. There's gas stations on the way closer to our house. It's all good. And in my mind, 
It's settled. We've got a great plan. We don't have to go out of the way. We don't have to spend extra minutes in the car with our lovely, rambunctious eight and six-year-olds. But about 20 seconds later, Robin holds up her phone and says, there are three gas stations within three miles. Each of them at the most will be a 10-minute detour. Ah. And now, unfortunately, this is no longer about whether or not we need gas. This is about protecting my fragile ego. This is about protecting the part of me that gets really embarrassingly frustrated when I say, we're going to be fine. And nobody else in the car believes me. Because here's the deal, okay? I want to be trusted. I want my family to have faith in me and I want them to have faith in what I say. I'm about to say that this is what's at the heart of our passage today, but it seems kind of comical. Because it is. This is at the heart of our passage today from Mark. Because Jesus wants to be trusted. Jesus wants humanity to have faith in him and what he says. Of course, it's true, I want to be trusted primarily because I have a fragile ego. Okay? Whereas Jesus, he wants to be trusted primarily because the hopes that he has for the redemption of mankind depend on whether or not we trust in who he is and what he says. Which is a big difference. But at the heart of the passage is Jesus who wants to be trusted. He wants the folks in front of him to say, I believe in what you're telling me. I'm on board with what you're saying to us. But Jesus gets really frustrated with his disciples here. Because they come to him on this boat ride. And they wake him up from his nap. And they tell him, they tell him something that's actually opposite of what he had said just a little bit ago. Because at the beginning of the passage, we have Jesus and he says to his disciples, hey, guess what, guys? We're going to go to the other side of the lake. And here they are halfway across the lake. And yes, there's a storm, but his disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, I know you said we're going to the other side of the lake, but I'm here to tell you we're actually not going to the other side of the lake. We're going to the bottom of the lake. And here's Jesus. And he's frustrated. And he kind of gives them a little, man, you can sense the frustration. Hey, why are you so afraid? Have you no, do you still? He says, still, still, still no faith? Come on, there's incredible frustration there. He's like, do you still have no faith? And he's so frustrated. And at first, I think Jesus is being incredibly harsh. Like, okay, the storm is fierce. Their fear is reasonable. Their fear is reasonable. It's not unreasonable fear. They've got waves crashing over the side of the boat. The boat is about to be swamped. And he's sleeping and they're like, do you even care? Like, do you even care, Jesus, down in the stern with your fancy cushion? I'm picturing like a red velvety plush cushion, right? And I'm picturing Jesus like, come on, there's like part of me believes like he knew that storm was coming. 
You know, and this story reads one way if it's like, oh, and Jesus was so exhausted from his day of teaching and, and parables that like, even though like the waves were coming over the boat and he was helping and bailing water and tying down the banister <laughs> or the tarp that hangs up and the wind blows, whatever, he's tying it down. He's so excited. He just passed out from exhaustion. And he fell asleep and his disciples woke him up. That's not the story. The story is Jesus, he went and he found himself a nice fluffy cushion. And he went and he got comfortable down in the bottom of that boat. And he said, enjoy the storm, boys. Right? That's the story. And so at first I'm like, Jesus, really? Like, you're frustrated with the disciples? Like, there have been times when Jesus should be frustrated with his disciples. Right? There are some times when they do really stupid things. Things that are completely out of line with who they know him to be. Like, like a time when all these children are like coming to Jesus and climbing on his lap. And his disciples are like, get out of here, little kids. We don't got time for you. We don't got space for you. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm here for them. You guys are idiots, right? Or like, or like, uh, like they're walking through town and there's a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, on the side of the street. And he's screaming, Jesus, 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 I need help. And his disciples are like, be quiet, man. Like, we've got more important things to do. And Jesus is like, are you guys, you don't get it. You don't get me. You don't understand me. And he has reasons to be frustrated with his disciples. But here I'm like, whoa, Jesus, you're sleeping, dude. And, and, and this is a big storm. And they come to you and they're, they're asking us, do you even care? You're sleeping. Do you even care? It's a reasonable question. Their fear is reasonable. Their question is reasonable. Jesus comes at them like they're being completely unreasonable. And I'm like, what's up with that? And here's what I wonder. Okay, here's what I wonder. I wonder if Jesus is having a little flashback here. I wonder if Jesus is having like a little mini PTSD moment. I wonder if this conversation on the boat caused Jesus the Christ to snap back to a time and place, other conversations that have actually caused him tremendous pain. And here's what I mean. So first of all, I don't know if you ever had one. It's, it's funky to have a flashback. It really is. And uh, I experienced this firsthand because every time I see a pit bull, I have a little flashback, okay? About three years, almost three years ago now, I was riding my bike home. I was on the, I was on the uh, four-mile run bike trail, okay? And I'm going past this pit bull, and I get right next to the side of it. It lunges at me. It bites me in my arm. It knocks me off my bike, almost off my bike. I wish it knocked me off my bike, but it didn't because I was clipped in. And I was so flabbergasted by what was happening, I couldn't get my feet unclipped. So this dog bit me off bit my arm, knocked me off the trail onto the road on my back with my bike on top of me. And I'm in the road saying, oh my God, no cars, please. This is not how it ends. This is not how it ends. I get my head run over by a car because of a dog bit me on a trail. Come on, that's traumatic. So I'm walking by a pit bull on the trail and you know something happens to my heart rate. It starts to spike. My palms get sweaty. My mind starts rushing. It takes me right back to a place in time that is pretty, pretty painful. And I actually wonder here if in this moment, Jesus' intensity with which he attacks the disciples is like a little flashback. So, so here's the central claim of Christianity. And this is going to stretch us a little bit, but, but this is, it's in kind of important to talk about. Christ has been around for all of time. Christ has seen it all. He has been there for it all. And this is actually a claim that Christ 
makes about himself that others considered so blasphemous they wanted to stone him. There's a, a, a very specific conversation you might recall. He's talking with religious leaders and he's talking with them about their ancestry. He's talking with them about their father, Abraham. And Jesus says to them, he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And so I think back to moments where Christ was and conversations that may have caused him tremendous pain. Conversations a lot like the one that's happening here on this boat when he says, hey, disciples, guess what? I'm taking you to the other side of the lake. And they come to him and they say, Jesus, you're actually taking us to the bottom of the lake. You're not leading us into a fuller life or a greater adventure. You're leading us to our death. I think back to a conversation that Jesus was there for, that the Christ was there for about 1,500 years earlier. The story goes that the nation of Israel had been famously and miraculously freed from slavery in Egypt. They had been miraculously led through waters into a wilderness where they could begin to form a new identity and a new relationship with God who had just saved them. And ultimately, after being rescued out of slavery, after being led to the wilderness, the the goal was for God to lead them into the promised land where they could flourish and they could thrive and they could experience life as they were meant to experience life. They could be free from fear in the promised land. They can be free from the sense they had to provide for themselves in the promised land. The story goes, they get through the wilderness and they get right up to the doorstep of the promised land. And God is letting his people know, come on, it's time to enter the promised land. It's time to go in. And God is saying to them, I'm taking you over there. I'm taking you over there into adventure, into full life, into life as it was meant to happen. And if you know the story, you know that at that time, Moses actually decides, he makes a command decision and decides that it'd be a good idea to send spies into the land to check it out, to see if it was all God says it was cracked up to be. And so the spies, and they go, the spies go and they check out the land and they find that the land is amazing. And they come back telling stories of grapevines that are so big you can't even carry them. But they also come back telling stories of tribes of people who are living in the land who are so big that they don't think they stand a chance if they ever came to battle. And they became afraid. So they had a huddle. They had a conversation. Moses, 12 spies. Christ was there for it. And he was there when two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, they said, hey, listen, the land is good. Let's go. Let's take it. God says he's leading us there. Let's trust him. Doesn't matter how big the people are. Doesn't matter how big the Canaanites are, how fierce they look. If God says he's leading us into full life, we need to take him at his word. And Jesus is there and he's like, yes, listen to them. Listen to them. It's what we have planned for you. Our plan is for you to thrive and for you to flourish. So listen to these two. And Jesus was also there when the other 10 and Moses start to waver in their faith. And they doubt whether or not they could take God at his word. And they say, and they start to have a conversation like, I know God says he's leading us into full life, but actually what we believe he's doing is leading us to our graves. He's leading us into death because the Canaanites in that land are so big and they're so fierce. 
And Jesus was there saying, no, no. All of my hopes and dreams for you depend on the fact that you take me at my word when I say I'm leading you into life. You believe me. You don't look at me and say, no, you're not. You're leading me into death. You don't, no. And all of, all of Christ's hopes for the nation of Israel in that moment were put on hold, were shattered. And that's painful for Jesus. And he was there. So here we are, years later, and Jesus is on a boat with 12 of his disciples. And he had just told them, hey, I'm leading you across this lake. I'm taking you to the other side of the lake. And here they are looking at him and saying, no, you're not. You're taking us to our grave. You're taking us to the bottom of the lake. And Jesus is going, no, oh my God, no, no. This conversation can't be happening again. We can't be having the same conversation again. Because everything I have planned to do on this earth depends on the fact that when I say we're going to the other side of the lake, you trust me, you believe me, and it doesn't matter how big the Canaanites are in the land. It doesn't matter how big the waves are that crash on the side of the boat. Those are just distractions. And I wonder if actually Jesus is holding back more direct words, wanting to cry out something to the effect of, listen, if I say we're going to the other side of the lake, believe me, there is not a storm that can keep it from happening. Just like if I say that fig tree is going to wither, there is not a greenhouse that can save it. If I say that I'm going to conquer death, believe me, there's not a grave that can hold me. If I say I'm going to love you no matter what, believe me, there's not a sin that can stop me. If I say you'll be with me in heaven, believe me, there's not a demon that can stand in your way. And here's what's really at stake. Jesus is asking his disciples to take him at his word that when he says he's taking you to the other side of the lake, you believe him. And that's small potatoes. And they need to trust him on this because, listen, if they can't trust Jesus to get him to the other side of a lake, how are they going to trust Jesus when Jesus says, hey, I'm actually going to prepare a place for you in heaven, a place you can't even see? How are they going to trust Jesus when he says, hey, you need to put me first. You need to pray for your enemies. You need to trust me with decisions about your finances. You need to trust me with decisions about your relationships. So with this in mind, I feel like Jesus' intensity on the boat is more understandable. I get it. All of your hopes for us, Jesus, depend on us taking you at your word and what you said. Christ said it thousands of years ago to Israel when they were on the border of the promised land. He said it to his disciples 2,000 years ago on a boat. He's saying it to us today. He's saying, Let me take you into the land. Let me take you across to the other side of the lake. Let me lead you into fuller life. Let me lead you into an experience of this life that you are always meant to live. Because right now, the life you're experiencing is not the life you were meant to live. It's not. All of your fears, all of your confusion, all of your despair, not the life you were meant to live. Let me lead you into the life you were meant to live. To live. So, actually, we'll see how this goes, okay? We'll see how this goes. But um, what I really would love to do is to, in, in a minute, invite some of our young people up on stage to help me with a little demonstration. 
because I want to just conclude this message with a little bit more like meat around what it looks like for Jesus to lead us out of the experience of life we were not meant for and into the experience of life that we were meant for. I want to do a demonstration, but before they come up, I just need to put one picture in your head, okay? Picture this. It's a kid's spinning top battle game. Anybody know what they're called? Beyblades. Okay, Beyblades, okay? And to be totally honest, I've been spending way too much time playing Beyblades in the last six months than a grown man should. Um, But in all fairness, my eight-year-old's obsession with Beyblades marked the end of his obsession with Pokemon, which I welcomed with open arms because I cannot stand the Pokemon, okay? So, So I'm like, okay, let's do the Beyblade thing. Okay, get rid of the Pokemon. Um, so, so here's the deal. If you've never seen a Beyblade, what you need to picture is a small top made out of plastic or metal that's basically designed and engineered to look like a fierce warrior. Jagged edges, sharp ends, right? Divots and, and designs, okay? And they come in a box with a launcher and a ripcord and a stadium in which you take the Beyblade and you rip the cord and the Beyblade just spins furiously, and it spins and it spins and it spins and it spins, okay? And you gather around the stadium with your friends and picture like, you know, all these like eight-year-olds like crouched around a stadium and they're all ripping Beyblades and they're like, no late joins, oh, late launch, oh, you're disqualified, oh, and they're fighting about it and it's hilarious, right? But here's the thing, here's what, here, you don't need to know all that. Here's why I want you to picture Beyblades in your head, okay? Because Beyblades, Beyblades, can spin for a while on their own without problem. They can spin just fine. And in fact, you launch a Beyblade into the stadium and it spins and it kind of runs around the stadium or back and forth. That Beyblade is probably really enjoying its life. Okay? Probably really enjoying its life. Okay? But if you launch a second Beyblade, or a third Beyblade, or a fourth Beyblade, chances are you're all going to run into really, really big problems. Before too long, you're going to have some pretty serious conflict in a way that's probably going to lead to the death of a Beyblade. Now look, uh, you can launch a second Beyblade and actually for a time, like, they can chase each other around. They can spin on opposite sides of the stadium. They can kind of coexist for a short amount of time. But eventually, inevitably, the bays that are spinning will spin too closely. And that's when you have conflict. And that's when you have problems. Okay. So let me invite some, invite some folks on a stage. <coughs> Excuse me. We ran through this a couple times a couple times. Um, it was a little bit of a mess, to be totally honest, but I think, I still think this is cool, and I think the point behind this is really powerful, and, and I think what, what's going to happen up here is going to really, really help us get excited about, yeah, okay, you want a selfie with the back, <laughs> Ethan? Okay, hey man, you're looking good today, by the way. Nice, is a new shirt? Dude, you have a great mom, Debbie. She's fantastic. Your dad's okay, too. Okay, your mom's great. Okay, this is a waste of time. 
let's keep, let's keep going. So here's what we're after. We're, we're, we're after, like the main point of today is this. Jesus' hopes for mankind depend upon us taking him at his words for where he wants to take us and lead us. He wants to lead us into full life. He wants to lead us into an experience of life that we were meant to live, a life of harmony, a life of peace, a life of joy, a full life, okay? But right now we don't experience that, do we, guys? Life's pretty tough. You know, homework and tests and Snapchat and all that stuff and fights and drama. Come on, not you guys. You guys are drama-free for sure, okay? Um, But life's not like that. Life is full of conflict and death and pain, right? And war and rich and poor. And so just a little demonstration, how did we get there and what does Jesus have in mind for bringing us out of it, rescuing us out of it? So let's start at the very beginning. We're going to start with God, okay? And, and if we listen to Jesus' words, we know that God is not just one unique individual, but Jesus was insistent upon this, that God was a community of three persons. So God, come on. And, and so what we do is we, Jesus, he always said this. He said, I do not exist on my own. I'm not by myself. You can't know me without knowing the Father, and just, you can't know me without knowing the Spirit. And I'm from a community of unique individuals, okay? And actually, I just want to set God in motion. It's just a clearer picture. God is not a static. You know, nothing about our universe is. Our universe is in motion as a reflection of who God is, right? And don't go too fast. I don't want you guys to get dizzy. You're going to be spinning for a long time, okay? All right. And so here's the deal, And this is what's beautiful about this conceptualization of God. What we don't have is a conceptualization of God. I'm going to duck in here for a second. That is in the middle of all things, one individual in the middle of all things saying, everything, everybody bow down to me, worship me. Everything is about me. We do not, look, look, this is egomaniacal, right? And this is not the picture of God that Jesus gives us. In fact, Jesus says it's not about a single individual. It's about a community that is beautiful. It's about a community that's in harmony. Is it, about a, is it, it is about a community of persons who have existed for all time in loving relationship. And what they have is good. And it is worthy to be worshipped. And not only that, not only that, but it's what we were intended to engage. So as, and as an expression of who God is and God's love and God's expanding, moving self. He says, let us create man in our own image. And so as an expression of who God is, we have mankind enter the picture, okay? God expands himself, extends himself. He says, we're gonna create, who just joined? Who's Adam? That's you, Bailey. Okay, okay. So here we go, Adam. I'm just gonna follow you just so I know who you are, okay? Adam has, has joined as, he was meant to join the community of God and life for Adam is good, this, Adam's needs were meant to be met in this community. His purposes are fulfilled engaging this community. His desires are satisfied, okay? Everything is good. He's experiencing the glory of what God has experienced for all of time, okay? It's perfect harmony. It's good. It's very good. It's perfect, okay? God is at rest. But life is not like this, is it? It's not even close. In fact, it's very much different. We have wars and conflict. So what happened? Well, the story goes like this. At some point, Adam made a decision. Adam made a decision that although he was meant to thrive in this community, although his needs are met in this community, although his purposes are fulfilled in this community, his identity belongs in this community, Adam says, you know what? I can do me. 
I can actually exist apart from this community. I can pursue my own contentment. I can provide for my own needs. I can provide my own satisfactions. I can, I can provide for myself my own purposes. I can be, in effect, completely self-sufficient. I can become self-sufficient. And when Adam decides to become self-sufficient, what we see happening is, can be described as two things. There's like this, okay, originally Adam is engaged with the community. He says, no, I can be self-sufficient. He experiences a collapse in upon himself. He collapses in upon himself and begins this self-orbit. He's no longer oriented to community right? He is now just oriented to himself only, orbiting around himself. And what it looks like is spinning. And everybody, you're going to love this. We have our world's first Beyblade. Okay. Come on, go back to that picture. That's really important. This is the arena of life, right? And you have a Beyblade spinning in the middle in a dizzying experience of self-sufficiency. And come on, isn't it true that when we collapse in on ourselves, we pursue our own desires, our own purposes, we believe we can create ourselves, whatever. It's dizzying, it's disorienting. In the same way that spinning is disorienting. And in the same way that Beyblades can, can spin for a while, you're not, yeah, okay, it's fine. You're doing great. You guys are doing great. How are you doing? Feeling good? Nobody's gonna puke? Okay. Keep going. You guys are doing fantastic. Okay. In the same way that a Beyblade can spin for a while and be okay, in this exact same way, it cannot when other individuals who are also collapsed in upon themselves, spinning in an experience of self-sufficiency, pursuing their, their own purposes, providing for their own contentments, providing I'm out to get mine, right? Now I'm living in a world of self-preservation and self-sufficiency. And now we only have two, right? But already I'm seeing bumping. I'm seeing conflict because one of them is spinning according to their own wills and desires here. And the other one is spinning according to their own wills and desires here. They're individuals. They have, they're collapsed in a dizzying experience of self-sufficiency, right? And now imagine this. You know, we have, we have like almost 8 billion people. In, eight, how many billion people in the world? 7.5 billion people in the world. Is that true? Come on, imagine 7.5 billion Beyblades spinning in the arena of this world, each consumed with pursuing their own wills, their own purposes, their own contentments. We wonder why we have conflict. We wonder why we have wars. We wonder why we're so discontented. We wonder all of that. Oh my goodness, it's because we're not experiencing life we're, according to what we were meant to experience. We're disoriented. We're spinning. We're dizzy. We're lost. And what actually, what scripture tells us is this experience here is the experience of death. It's not life. But the story doesn't end here. And remember, today's all about one thing. Jesus wants to lead us into full life. Jesus is not gonna leave us where we are. And so this is the story that's told by scripture that Jesus actually steps into the mess of humanity. And, and Ethan and May, you can just freeze and kind of hold pose as the arena, right? And humans, you're going to continue to spin in self-sufficiency, pursuing your own deal. But Jesus enters the mess. He enters the battle. He enters the war of spinning Beyblades. But he does not himself spin. 
And come on, this is really important. This is a central claim about who Jesus is. When people claim that he was perfect, when people claim, claim that he was sinless, what they're saying is he engaged a spinning world, but at no point, at no point did he collapse in upon himself and begin a self-orbit of self-sufficiency and self-preservation. At every turn of his life, he maintained an appropriate relationship to the community in which he came from and the community in which he has always belonged. At every turn, pointing to the Father, I can do nothing on my own. I do not exist apart from him. I will not protect myself for the sake. Look, he didn't do it when he was led out into the desert to be tempted, and he didn't do it at the end of his life when he was being brutally beaten and mocked and, and, and scorned, right? At no point did he say, uh-uh, no, I'm about to preserve myself. I'm going to collapse in and do what humans can do. No. And this is the miracle of Jesus, and this is the beauty of Jesus. And I got to bring this to a close. But the promise is this, and it's the coolest part. That Jesus says, whoever receives me, whoever believes in my name, I actually have the power to give you a new nature. I actually have the power to rescue you out of your spinning. If you will follow me, if you will let me lead you, I can actually lead you out of your spinning, dizzying, disoriented experience of self-preservation and self-sufficiency, and I can re-engage you with the community of God that you were intended to live with, and you will come to full life, and you will be oriented to reality, and you will know peace, and you will know harmony, and you will know joy, and it is good. Come on, because look, what Jesus is after is taking the world's largest Beyblade battle and turning it into the world's largest game of Ring Around the Rosie. That's what it is. Okay, can we give these guys a hand? They did great. Hold for applause. Okay, get out of here. Go. You got, we're, we're already running late, okay? Parker's going to kill me. Um, so, in, in closing, I just want to challenge you to do two things, okay? Just two things. One, ask this. Ask this question. What is next for me? As I leave behind self-sufficiency and self-preservation and I follow Jesus towards self-sacrifice. What is next for me as I leave behind self-preservation and self-sufficiency and follow Jesus towards self-sacrifice? And two, just a prayer. Pray this. Jesus, you change my heart to find joy in self-sacrifice. Show me what's next. Um, in, a, in a, just a moment, I'm going to pray and then I'll invite campus pastors to come up and conclude our services. Um, do we still have time? We're just going to do it. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, it's their fault. They took a long time. Okay. <laughs> um, we're going we're gonna to close service by taking communion and I just want to encourage you to reflect on those two challenges. What's next for me as I leave behind self-sufficiency and self-preservation and follow Jesus into self-sacrifice? Because commun communion is a beautiful reminder of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Will you pray with me? Jesus, it's, it's, uh, it's too good to be true. We have hope. We have hope for our futures. In a world that is, is full of um, conflict, full of pain, God, you're not going to leave us. You're going you're to enter into the mess. You're going to rescue us out of it. You lived it. And then you extended that life for us to take up. God, thank you. 
God, help us as we move forward. Help us to understand these things on a deeper level. Thank you for your beauty and for your love. Amen.